As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry, and today I'm joined by a man who's making some folks down in Charlotte a little bit jealous because he did not have to pay any sort of extra fee to sit in his chair right now. It's Adam Snavely. Adam, thank you for coming on the show. Ooh, that is right, Charlotte FC fans. What's up? (laughs) My seat, I purchased for just the seat and nothing else uh, involved with the uh, the paperwork or or licensing or legal things. I, I don't. <laughs> oh, that's a whole that's a whole can of worms. So we're going to get into later. But thank you, Joe. Thank you for welcoming me once again to the Total Soccer Show. It's always a pleasure to be here. I mean, how could I not welcome you know Baron von Snavelington? Or was that was that me? What's what's your official name? I, I am the Lord Baron von Snavelington. Um, okay, that close. was bestowed wow. upon me. By Taylor, um, and you are Pepper Joe. That is that is your canon. That's right. I don't know what title that actually bestows upon you. Maybe you are a duke or earl of some sort with the name of Pepper Joe. Maybe you are the Lord of Spice. It sounds good. But uh, yeah, the the Lord Baron von Snavington and Pepper Joe are here to once again answer your listener questions. Oh yes, we are, Adam. Yes, we are. I like. I like Lord of Spice for myself. I don't think I actually get to choose, but if enough people out there get behind it, I think we can make that happen. As Adam said, we are here to answer listener questions. Before we do that, though, I wanted to ask you, Adam, you and I talk about this sometimes, but I I open my email in the mornings and I miss I miss your newsletter. I miss Dead Ball Daily. I miss the Uh, the awesome things you are writing. But that's not to make you feel bad about not doing the newsletter. (laughs) I just want to know what are you what are you working on right now? Because we'll we'll chat about that. But for the listeners out there who are maybe maybe wanting to find your work or wanting to read or hear from you more or see you more, what are you doing right now, man? Yes, the uh, the Deadball Daily slash Deadball Whenever newsletter has been on a <laughs> hiatus, uh, as as many people probably have have noticed. Um, that is uh, that 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 was intentional. I actually I think in November I clicked the. Uh, the little button that said stop receiving uh, like subscription revenue and all that stuff. Um, I turned that off uh, when it became clear because of a couple reasons. Uh, I don't, I don't want to reveal too much at the moment um, that uh, dead ball whenever was going to be much more infrequent slash going away. Um, I am working on, uh, I am working on a couple things right now. One of which is, a new newsletter project. So hopefully in the next, in the next, even maybe in the next few weeks, in the next month, uh, that is going to launch. There's a, a couple of different things that surround that, but there is a new newsletter project in the works that I'm working on with a couple other people, which is going to be fun and cool. And hopefully that will be something that you all are interested in. And I do have also some other writing exploits that are soon come as they say on the internet. So that is something else that I am kind of working on, um, building some pitches, getting some more, uh, 
more, I guess, journalistic style writing, uh, going slightly back to my roots as much as you could call what I was writing before I was doing newsletter stuff, journalism, uh, which sometimes it was, and sometimes it was maybe things that were disguised as journalism or, or, or maybe even not that maybe it was journalism disguised as something else. Um, but yes, there's a few things, uh, writing wise that are currently in the pipeline, uh, that I, I, I don't know if I could talk about yet or, or how much I could talk about them, but there are some things that are coming from me on the way. And I also, uh, am still doing stuff with, uh, Jimmy Conrad and working for him and doing stuff on his stream, uh, which is twitch.tv slash Jimmy Conrad. You can usually see me on, uh, some of his shows uh, that he does that he produces live. I'm also kind of involved with kind of helping building the show. Um, some sketches, some writing bits. So I, I've got my hands in a few different places at the moment. I love that. Adam, thank you for, for plugging and thank you for letting us know that we should be excited because you have writing things and other projects in the works. I know I at least am excited. Hopefully listeners out there are excited as well. I'm guessing that they're also excited about us talking about listener questions and hopefully answering them. Up first, we have a question from James Choka. Chaka? Either way, it's a cool last name. He says, this is a Joe Lowry special. I feel a little bit narcissistic reading this. This is a Joe Lowry special. What does Liverpool's relative collapse amid primarily the absence of their first choice center backs say about the perceived value of defensive specialists in soccer? So what is Liverpool's bad form and, and kind of issues this season say about the value of defensive specialists in soccer? Adam, even though James says this is a Joe Lowry special, I want to flip it to you first. How did you interpret this question what are your thoughts and, and how did you go about trying to answer this thing? Uh, okay. So my thing when I read the question was, I think that to some extent defenders have been valued for a very long time. If we're just talking about value in a general sense. So I kind of went to money and looking at valuation and the word valued as a, a very literal kind of term. Uh, when I, when I kind of looked at the answer to this question, and if we look at the value that some people have paid for defenders, like objective hard, like we have paid this much cash to sign a defender, <coughs> Harry Maguire, I can say with some degree <laughs> of certainty that there is a quite high value for defenders still to this day, even in, in this age of high profile attackers and, and forwards and wingers that break the 200 million euro transfer uh, mark, all, all these things, you know, there's speculation about where's Kylian Mbappe going to go? Where's Erling Holland going to go? Are we going to have a $300 million player? And, and you rarely hear defenders discussed in in that kind of echelon of of money when we're talking about transfer fees and that sort of thing but i mean if we're looking at somebody like harry Maguire, i mean united paid roughly 20 million dollars more for harry Maguire than for example chelsea paid for christian pulisic right so so to some extent we are valuing defenders already and i don't think that Anybody was ever saying like, oh, like Liverpool would be fine if they had four center backs that all just had catastrophic injuries and were out for the rest of the season. Like, I don't know if anybody was like really trying to ever make that claim, especially with how vaunted and and lauded Virgil van Dyke became with his play for Liverpool. So I think what the question is maybe subconsciously digging into a little bit is more of a question of do we reevaluate? how much we value defenders in relation to how much we value attackers, because that is kind of, I mean, that's the little, the binary that we have going here is, is attackers versus defenders. When we say something like defensive specialists, uh, that's, that's kind of a different ball game. Um, and I don't think we're ever going to live in a world where defenders are, are more highly valued than attackers, at least in a monetary sense. Um, and even looking at Liverpool struggles, uh, and I, I don't think that even they would value their defenders more highly than their attackers, even in their current form, even in their current struggles with injuries. Yes, they have been unbelievably unlucky and have really, really missed their starting defending core, obviously. For my money, a player that Liverpool arguably missed even more than all their defenders this year was Diogo Jota, um, who was really kind of 
offering their attack different looks um, and was kind of providing before his injury and, and kind of lengthy layoff a, a an outlet for the attack win the the obvious kind of the obvious suspects in Muhammad Salah and Sadio Mane, even in Bobby Firmino. Um, when all those people were kind of when when it seemed like teams were catching wise to those to that attack, those attacking patterns, those particular attackers, Diogo Jota was really kind of stepping up and becoming one of the most important pieces of that Liverpool team. So uh, that was a little bit of a long-winded response to perhaps what is a much more simple question. Um, the short answer is being, <laughs> okay. yeah, I think we value defensive specialists. I think we always have valued defensive specialists. If the question is, should we devout, should we value defensive specialists more than we value attacking attacking players? Maybe, but I don't think so. That's kind of how I looked at it, actually. Less on the monetary side and more on the on the comparison side, how do we think about attacking players in soccer? How do we think about Liverpool's attacking players compared to their defensive players? Because in a historical sense, I think defenders are really important. I think about Serie A in, you know, in the late 20th century. Defenders were big. Maldini was big. Maldini was massive. Whereas now, it seems to me, even though we have these generational talents like Virgil van Dijk in defense... Those players still aren't talked about. Van Dijk, I guess, is kind of the exception. But most center backs still aren't really talked about at his level. Liverpool's center backs aren't talked about ever, except when they're hurt in the same level as their fullbacks or as their midfielders or as their front line. And I think that might be a mistake, not just because I'm biased towards center backs, but because I think about, especially with how Liverpool play, their center backs are so important. And we see that clearer now than we ever have. When you lose Van Dyke and when you lose Joel Gomez and Joel Matip and, and Fabinho then with a little muscle injury right now and Jordan Henderson with that injury over the weekend against Everton, when you lose those guys, especially Van Dyke though, you lose your ability to defend in the same way. That's obvious, right? But Liverpool have now allowed this, the ninth most expected goals in the Premier League this season. So when they're missing those center backs, it hurts them defensively, which then hurts their ability to attack as well. They can't play as high of a line. It takes them longer to get to goal when they're having to drop their line back because they don't have Gomez and Van Dyke to sweep in behind. They lack the same type of distribution that they had with Van Dyke and with their first choice center backs. They can't play those long balls out to Trent Alexander-Arnold on the right or out to Andy Robinson on the left. You can't, you can't get those same types of passes as you had before. And then also when you have to put midfielders in and have those players deputizing at center back, you lose your midfield's ability. You lose some of those same characteristics that you had before when you take Jordan Henderson out of midfield, when you take Fabinho out of midfield, which then has the knock-on effect to affect Thiago and maybe to affect Mane and Salah and Firmino. I mean, there are, there are these dominoes that are falling when you lose your center backs. And yet you're always going to have dominoes fall when you lose four, you know, four or five players who can play in any one spot. But I do think to answer James question, from my view, at least Liverpool is a pretty good example of of defenders maybe needing to be valued higher and us maybe not realizing how important they are to a tactical setup before you lose those players. You know, you don't you don't know what you have till it's gone. I think that's kind of what we're seeing with Liverpool right now. Yeah, I could buy that. Um and and especially your point about how how the the defensive players and how the center backs really determine and control how the rest of your team is playing as well. Um yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, I fundamentally agree with everything that you're saying here. <laughs> and it is, it's a good reminder, and I love this question from James, because it does force us to think about how we think about players. You know, if if Liverpool loses Firmino, are they in the same spot as if they lose Van Dijk? No, I think Van Dijk is a more important player to them. And maybe the same goes for even Mane or Salah. Maybe not, I'm not willing to, you know, to die for that take. But I do think it's a good example of, of the importance of center backs specifically, even in a team that typically relies more on their fullbacks in attack than almost any other position outside of their front line. So Liverpool would just play such a unique style and we're seeing how important their central defenders are to that style now that they're struggling majorly this year, despite, you know, beating RB Leipzig in the Champions League. So I think there's a very real connection between Liverpool's lack of first choice center backs and their, their poor season. I think we can leave it at that, Adam. You have anything else to add? Uh, no, although I, I do think that like uh, maybe the Liverpool situation is once again a, a, a note on how 
this might differ from club to club and the specific setups that that yeah. different clubs have in relation to how they want to play um and the maybe the importance of defensive specialists and and the center backs under Jurgen Klopp is not necessarily the same as what might happen in I mean, staying in the same league in Thomas Tuchel's setup or Jose Mourinho's setup and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I would, I would say maybe a, a slight caution against taking one team and one situation and saying, this is how we're going to reevaluate how we value people across the board everywhere. But yes, uh, I mean, I, we, we are in general agreement. <laughs> It is. That's a, that's a wise word of caution, Adam. I appreciate that. Listeners, we have more questions to get to in just a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Adam, we are back. We have another listener question to get to and many more after that. This one is from Jordan Body, who asks, do we, as Americans, overrate Jesse Marsh? Ooh. Jordan says he often sees RB Salzburg fans on Reddit saying that Marsh is not good enough for Salzburg, particularly after big defeats and European competitions. Is Jesse Marsh not as good as American fans tend to think he is? Adam, where do you, where do you fall on this? I feel like we got to be careful on this one. It's a little bit loaded, but uh, I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, uh, are we being accused as Americans of, of ethnocentrism? <laughs> the United States of America? Couldn't be me. Do, that we, that we, that we somehow think more highly of ourselves on a global stage? That, uh, <laughs> perish the thought, Jordan. Perish the thought. All right. Bit's over. Um, <laughs> okay. I am very much open to the possibility that I, as an American, overrate Jesse Marsh just because I want us to see him succeed as an American. And, and that makes sense, right? Um, in terms of the way that kind of soccer has developed as a culture and as a fan culture in the United States, it's a little insular. It's a little underdog mentality because it's not one of the more popular sports because Americans have traditionally not succeeded in the sport globally. I think it's natural that a lot of Americans get very excited when they see somebody like Jesse Marsh doing his thing, when they see him succeeding and and kind of achieving these these little milestones that we haven't seen an American do or maybe not at least to the degree with which he is doing them i think it's somewhat natural to say yeah it's a possibility that we overrate jesse marsh as an american and i, I am also not you know a, a red bull salzburg expert i am not somebody who watches them week in week out and I also don't frequent Salzburg Reddit. So I, I don't know necessarily the quality of the analysis on, uh, on the, the Reddit, the Reddit forums that, that Red Bull Salzburg fans frequent. And I also am not a Red Bull Salzburg expert. I, but, oh, no, please, Joe, go ahead. Oh, well, I apologize for interrupting. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm with you, Adam, on being open to Jesse Marsh being overrated. I'm, I'm with you in saying that it is possible. But looking specifically at Jordan's question, he asks, you know, or, or he talks about seeing RB Salzburg fans on Reddit saying Marsh is not good enough for Salzburg. And I think I would push back against that a little bit because of his resume, because of where he's come from and what he's done in the U.S. with the Red Bulls coming back after coaching the Montreal Impact and really making a genuine impact, pun very much intended, with the Red Bulls <laughs> in, in that, in that club and doing what he did with that team, winning a supporter shield, winning games consistently doing exactly what you know Ralph Rangnick would want him to do playing that style that he would want Jesse Marsh to be playing while Marsh was still able to make it his own and so I think Marsh had all of the qualifications to join Salzburg after you know a little stint with Leipzig as an assistant he has the qualifications and I think 
I do think it's genuinely a little bit harsh for Salzburg fans to be to be saying that Marsh isn't good enough for them after these European defeats because I assume that's rooted in their their loss in the Champions League group stage each of the last two years. So this year they finished third in their group in the Champions League behind you know just two pretty average teams, Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. Uh, yeah, that's sarcasm because those two teams are favorites to win the whole title, the whole Champions League, in my opinion. Then last year, they finished third in their group behind Liverpool, who, you know, were dominant at the time, and Napoli as well. And they got rave reviews from Jurgen Klopp throughout that process and Carlo Ancelotti as well, if I'm remembering correctly. And so, man, I just feel like it's, it's harsh to, it's unreasonable even to expect Jesse Marsh and Salzburg with the talent deficit they're at relative to those major European teams and top five leagues to be coming out of the Champions League at all. If he had, great. And I think that's truly impressive. But the fact that Marsh and Salzburg didn't make it out in his first two years, I don't think that should condemn him as a Salzburg coach. Yeah, and and it's it's a little bit difficult to rate him as a Salzburg coach just because he is coaching kind of, you know, the far and away the best team in Austria, you know? They've, they've won the Austrian Bundesliga for the last seven years straight. Which is a, is a time that spans three separate managers, as far as I know. I think it's just three, maybe four. Um, so for better or worse, if you're kind of leveraging these coaches against each other or, or, you know, when you're saying something like, Oh, Jesse Marsh isn't good enough for Red Bull Salzburg or something like that, you're kind of looking at, well, what have the past coaches done? Um, and what have his direct predecessor is Marco Rosa, who's now currently the head the manager of uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach and is going to be the manager of Borussia Dortmund just next year um you kind of have to go off of european competition i suppose just because it's become such an expectation at this point that salzburg is going to be dominating the austrian bundesliga and it's interesting because certainly if you look at european results and if you specifically go off what Salzburg has done in the Europa League, Marco Rosa has a better record because if you look at his wins, both in the group stages and in the knockout rounds, you see that under Marco Rosa, you have wins against, uh, you know, small teams like Red Bull Leipzig, or pardon me, not Red Bull, Rosenball Sport, <laughs> Rosenball Sport Leipzig, uh, Marseille, Lazio, Dortmund, Real Sociedad. Those are those are big teams. Those are really, really good quality wins. Absolutely. Like, like you, you can't, you can't really dispute that, I, I guess. And in comparison, when you get down to these knockout stages of the Europa League that Jesse Marsh's Red Bull Salzburg has been entered into after they have qualified for the Europa League through the last couple of years, finishing in third place in their Champions League groups, they only have losses. They lost to, they're losing currently to Villarreal. Um, the year before that, they had, uh, they lost to, I had it written down and now I have lost it. Just like Salzburg. Um, yeah, just, just like Salzburg did. Uh, they, they did lose, uh, to, to Eintracht. Eintracht Frankfurt. There it is. Found it. Um, they did have a loss to Eintracht Frankfurt, but the rub is that because of Marco Rosa's success, Salzburg, and Austria's coefficient went up, and now the winner of Austria, unlike in Marco Rosa's tenure, the champion of the Austrian Bundesliga is automatically sent to the Champions League group stages, where Jesse Marsh has looked very impressive. His teams have done impressive things against some of the biggest clubs in the world, whereas under Marco Rosa, you had teams that were not qualifying not qualifying for the Champions League group stages because they were losing in the playoffs to qualify for the Champions League group stages in consecutive years to Red Star and also uh Titans Rijeka from Croatia. So it's this kind of whole tit for tat thing where Marco Rosa obviously had more success in the the Europa League group stages but Jesse Marsh got the chance to show off his stuff in the Champions League and actually looked pretty impressive. It's it's a little bit of a wash. I can see how you can make the the, the argument that he isn't doing well enough when he gets to the Europa League and really that's what Salzburg fans want. They want a European title of some sort and that title would most naturally come from the Europa League. I don't think that most fans of Red Bull Salzburg really are expecting a Champions League victory to come out of this team at this time. I think at the end of the day, 
I'm going to kind of go off what you said. Um, I'm going to trust the Red Bull soccer machine, uh, who seem to have a pretty clear idea of what they're doing in terms of the players they crank out, the coaches that they hire, the systems that they play. And they have clearly invested a lot of time into Jesse Marsh, who is still in his first European appointment as manager and not just in like an assistant coach. And based on the evidence, I'm not ready to say that we technically overrate Jesse Marsh, unless you think he's immediately the best choice for Real Madrid or the French national team or something like that. That's probably a step too far and the sign that you're you're overrating him. But I think the jobs that he's currently being linked to, most recently, the soon-to-be vacant Borussia Mönchengladbach job, are reasonable jobs for him to be linked to based on his CV. And maybe the performances in Europe come for Salzburg. Maybe they don't. But I don't think we're overrating him at all that much right now, if at all. I almost think his next stop, be it at Mönchengladbach or somewhere else in Europe, I almost think that's going to be a better indicator of Jesse Marsh's managerial ability on a big stage than Salzburg because of how weird the Salzburg job is, right? Adam, you talked about how they've won the Austrian Bundesliga seven years in a row with a number of different managers. They're the most talented and the most thoroughly funded team in the Austrian Bundesliga year after year, and that's not going to change. So you're, you're dealing with that disparity in talent relative to the rest of your league, But then you're also losing talent, which makes it really, really hard to compete in European competitions. Last year, Salzburg lose Minamino to Liverpool midway through the season. Last year, they lose Haaland to Dortmund midway through the season. This year, they lose Zobaschlei midway through the season to RB Leipzig. And now their leading goal scorer, Pat Sandaka, is probably going to be gone after this season because he's such a good player. He's better than Salzburg. You know, he's better than their level overall in that league. And so they're, they're moving on to bigger and better things, these players year after year. So if you're Jesse Marsh... Not only do you have to deal with people justifiably saying that you should win the league, but then you also have to deal with people wanting you to do better in European competition when you're losing your best players over and over and over again. It's such a, it's such an unstable environment at Salzburg. Not, not in an organizational way, not in a structural way, but in terms of the resources that you have. They're always fluctuating and the competitions are, are at almost one end of the extreme to the other. So I'm curious to see how Marsh is going to do at his next job, because I do think there will be a next job at some point in the next year or two. And I think it's going to be a bigger job with more expectations, at least in terms of of European competitions, more realistic expectations. And I want to see how Marsh does at a Gladbach where things are maybe a little bit more stable, less, you know, player transition moving in and out of that squad. And he has a chance to really sit down and work with this team and understand exactly what his expectations are year after year. And the cherry on top of the whole like unstable kind of situation or, or not unstable, but, but a, a less stable, uh, player and personnel fluctuations, that, that sort of thing is that if you are by nature kind of judging all of Jesse Marsh and what he has done for Salzburg off of European competition, I mean, that's in, in and of itself, you're talking about very small microcosms of everything a coach does for a team and very weird high stakes games. Um, and, and, and that's a, that's a, it's difficult to rate a coach purely off of your performance in a knockout round stage in, in a two legged tie or something like that, or, or even in a group stage because it all, it is also high stakes. It is also, you know, one game can mean so much. Um, so like you said, I am interested in a, a possible job like Munchen Gladbach where you are, there are expectations of you. And it's going to be much more difficult on a consistent basis yeah. over the course of what your team can do. I mean, if you're hired from Munchen Gladbach, I think that it's not uh, unreasonable to say that Munchen Gladbach wants to be qualifying for the Champions League, right? They want to be in the, the top four yeah. of the Bundesliga. Yeah. That's a much more difficult, I would argue, that's a much more difficult thing to do over the course of the season in the Bundesliga than winning the Austrian Bundesliga with Red Bull Salzburg. Agreed. So, so I think that we will get a much better sense of where Jesse Marsh currently stands as a manager and as a coach, uh, in that next appointment, like you said, simply based on the fact that you're going to be tested much more rigor- rigorously on a much more consistent and long-term basis. So you're not going to have these tiny data points. You're going to have a lot of data. I think we're in agreement that it's possible that Jesse Marsh is overrated. We're open to that fact. But we're really going to learn more about how he stacks up coaching-wise at whatever that next job is because the RB Salzburg job is just so unique in a European context. Adam, is that a fair summary? I believe that we have given it our best shot and have dealt with it fairly. That's all we can ask for. This next question is from David Heinemann, 
who says, With a few Americans on relegation-threatened teams, which one should I spend the most emotional energy trying to will to stay up? David says, David says his preferred metric is which player's survival is most important for the future of the men's national team. And then he gives us some choices. Musa. <laughs> okay. Musa. He gives us some choices, one of which is Yunus Musa. He says Reggie Cannon and Boavista, Yunus Musa's Musa. Valencia, Anthony Robinson and Tim Reams Fulham, Dwayne Octavius Holmes, Huddersfield, or Matthew Hoppy Schalke. And then David says, just kidding, I can't bring myself to try to keep Schalke up. A wise, a wise, <laughs> wise man in that sense. As a Cubs fan, David is scarred and, and doesn't have the uh, capacity for any more sporting heartbreak. But he says the other teams are in fair contention. Adam, I couldn't help but hear you say Musa about 37 times as I was reading that question. So uh, mm-hmm. why don't you talk about Yunus Musa and why you want him to stay up more than maybe any of those other players listed? Well, I think specifically for David, if we're talking about his, his experience as a Cubs fan and he doesn't, he has built the capacity for sporting heartbreak, but he can't do all that for all of the above teams. Sure. Um, just in terms of pure, is this person going to stay up? Uh, I think that Yunus Musa is a, a great candidate considering Valencia are in 12th place in La Liga right now. Um, they are, they feel relatively safe. Um, that's not to say that they can't go on a poor run of form and get dragged down into uh the relegation zone uh or or thereabouts but i feel like that is relatively safe for you david in terms of heartbreak in terms of looking at the united states men's national team and and which team is more important most important for survival and 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 prospects and all these things when we're talking about the united states men's national team players and depth chart my answer is still yunus musa and here's why. I think that Unimusa's ceiling is far higher than anyone else on this list. Presuming that every single player in the United States men's national team pool, including those on this list, reach their full potential, which will not happen. But for the sake of the thought experiment, we're going to keep everything equal and say everybody reaches their full potential. I think everybody on this list outside of Musa would be debatable whether they start for the U.S. There is other people, other players that are going to create a lot of question marks for everybody else on this list if they reach their potential, as opposed to Yunus Musa reaching his potential where he plays on the field. For Reggie Cannon and Anthony Robinson, you have to deal with whichever side of the field Serginho Dest plays on, and then the depth chart on the opposite side of the field, which all of a sudden... It seems like there's a lot of really good and interesting young options at fullback for the United States, even at left back, which has not been the case like ever. But I, and, and I know we, we, we were called out publicly last time we spoke on Anthony Robinson, you and I, <laughs> uh, and, and he, he proceeded to have, I would say, I would say he had a good game. I don't know if he had the, 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 insane phenomenal game that a lot of people on on soccer twitter were claiming that he had he had a very good game against liverpool um which is an impressive feat and he has looked much better for fulham over the course of the season than he did at the beginning of the season so good for you i am pleased that anthony robinson is doing well and appears to be better than what i maybe possibly said earlier than that still I think there's question marks about him as starting left back for the United States. If you see every single other left back option for the United States reach their full potential. Um, I think the same of Matthew Hoppy and uh, the, the brief glimmer of Hoppy, which is my term for the, uh, the, the little tear that he went on his version of Lynn sanity um, that occurred with Schalke has, has quieted down a bit at, at the moment as it stands. And I, and I don't think Schalke is going to stay up anyway. So I'm not even going to spend much time on Matthew hobby and Dwayne Holmes. I think right now at the very least is playing the same position that Eunice Musa would be playing in any theoretical setup for the United States men's national team, right? They're both kind of playing that, or at least I think that they both figure into that that kind of more advanced eight kind of role, uh, the, the the hybrid ten eight thing that that we've seen Burhalter use a lot of, and you know 
whatever I, I, I just like Musa a little bit more in that spot at the moment. Uh, he's quicker. He's more confident on the dribble. I think what you might lose in some of the guile that Dwayne Holmes offers somewhat, I think in his passing, I think you gain back in spades just in terms of the energy and work rate that Musa brings to the midfield in, in what we have seen from him. I just think that Eunice Musa's ceiling is so high. And what he could feasibly do in that midfield trio that we have already seen, I would spend my emotional bandwidth hoping that Valencia stays up and keeps giving minutes to Yunus Musa. I'm with you, Adam. Yunus Musa has the highest ceiling of any player that that is mentioned in this question by David. So that already is is a big factor in his favor. They're also probably the least likely, maybe maybe on on par with Huddersfield in terms of being the least likely team to be relegated of the ones that that David gave to us. But I also think Yunus Musa stands the most to gain. He has the most to gain if Valencia stays up. And this is why. Valencia aren't a great team right now, which means there's a chance for them to come back in next year under, you know, Javi Gracia and hit the reset button a little bit. Maybe it gives Yunus Musa an offseason to continue to work on his game, to build up some deficiencies that he has and get into the middle of the field. Because right now, I think the biggest difficulty that Yunus Musa has at Valencia is that he's not being used all the time in, in a central midfield role. He's playing on the, the right wing or on the left wing. Most often. Yep. Tucking inside at times, yes, but he's not playing as a central midfielder, even though that's where Greg Berhalter wants him to be. And Taylor and I have talked about this in the past, and I've given my reasons for why I think he fits best in the middle. But my the, the long and short of it is I think Berhalter spot on. Musa's skill set and his ability to drive forward with the ball and be press resistant, I think add the most value in the middle of the field in contrast with his somewhat lacking 1v1 ability, which would then make him not as strong of a player out wide. So if Yunus Musa can come in, maybe Valencia sell sell one or or both of their starting central midfielders. I know there's been European interest from at least one of those players in the middle. Maybe Musa can come in and be uh, at least a rotation player in central midfield, getting one out of every three starts and then 45 minutes off the bench occasionally or 30 minutes off the bench. That's more minutes than he's getting right now out wide. So I think getting the competition that La Liga provides, getting hard games week in and week out, more so than the Segunda Division in Spain, having the chance to play first division minutes in Spain, potentially in central midfield next season if Valencia do reset a little bit under Gracia, I think that might bring more value to Yunus Musa relative to the value that could be added to Dwayne Holmes or Reggie Cannon or the Fulham guys or Matthew Hoppy. Yep. I basically completely agree with everything that you said there, Joe. Um, and also as a Borussia Dortmund fan, I would say never put any, any stock in Schalke. Just <laughs> okay. never put any stock in Schalke. Don't do it. Yeah. They're, they're going down. Matthew Hoppy is going to be in a tough spot no matter what happens. I think being relegated might be a little bit better for Hoppy. And Schalke, but uh, yeah, that's a tough one. No matter what, I feel like I feel like that's a good spot to leave us on this question with Matthew Hoppy's hope maybe being diminished. That was a really poor attempt at a Hoppy hope pun. You did it better. Adam. You know, you did it we, we've we've all we've all been there. We've <laughs> all. You don't make good jokes unless you have made bad jokes. Is a thing that I like to say as of right now because I just came up with it's, it. It's kind of genius. It's kind of wise. More genius and more wisdom from Adam Snavely and maybe a little bit from me later. We've got more listener questions to get to, but first, some messages from our sponsors. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We are back again. You just can't get rid of us, listeners. We have another listener question for you, and then one or two more after that. This one is from Nathan Chili, who asks, Why is there so little coverage of La Liga in the United States? I know La Liga is considered by many to be on par with the Premier League as far as talent, but in the United States, I hear far more about the Bundesliga and Serie A and know next to nothing about La Liga outside of the top three. 
Adam, this is an interesting question because it's been popping up weirdly for me multiple times over the last couple of weeks on a stereo broadcast that Taylor and I did last week. We had a question about La Liga and maybe why it's not as widely talked about or widely visible in the United States. Then it came up again in conversation I had with somebody. Maybe it was Taylor off mic. I can't remember. But now we're getting another chance to really sink our teeth into this question from Nathan. Why is La Liga, why is coverage of La Liga kind of poor in the U.S. relative to certainly the Premier League and the Bundesliga and Serie A as the leagues that Nathan specifically mentions? For me, Adam, and tell me if you agree, it's all about TV rights. It has to be all about yeah. TV rights, doesn't it? Yeah, the 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 broadcasting rights definitely play a, a massive, massive role in how much information and, and how inundated we are with stuff from England and even Germany and Italy as opposed to Spain. Um, because if you look at, for example, the examples that Nathan gave us in the question, the Bundesliga and Serie A, and you look at who has the broadcasting rights in the United States to the Bundesliga and to Serie A, it's ESPN. It's the biggest sports broadcaster in the United States, or at least I think the biggest pure sports broadcaster in the United States, who also happen to be one of the biggest sports media companies in the United States. So not only are they broadcasting these these matches, but it's also in their best financial interests to cover journalistically yep. these matches and all these leagues that they have the rights to. And you look at who owns the United States broadcasting rights to La Liga, it's BN Sports. And nobody has BN Sports. Yep. <laughs> listen, listen, like you, you have BN Sports if you are an absolute, absolute, just can't get enough soccer. I will buy every single streaming service that I possibly can in the United States. Or most likely where the vast majority of us get our BN Sports you have watched an illegal stream and that is, and that that's like, that's the two, that's just the two things. Uh, BN sports just isn't as big. They're much more niche in terms of what they cover. And because they're much more niche, much less people have them. If I go download ESPN plus, I'm not only getting the Bundesliga or Serie A, I'm also getting some MLS matches. I'm also getting a plethora of other sports for that matter. And BN just doesn't have that coverage. So broadcasting rights play just an absolutely massive role in how much we know and see of other leagues. And I think that that's kind of one of the primary reasons that we don't get more La Liga coverage in the United States. BN Sports is not available on Comcast Xfinity or DirecTV, which are two of the largest TV providers in the United States. That's that's kind of info from World Soccer Talk, who's done a really good job breaking down this TV right situation with La Liga. I did a lot of my research on World Soccer Talk. And La Liga's not really happy with BN Sports. La Liga North America is not pleased with how BN Sports is distributing their content, distributing their games, and it's hurting them. It's hurting La Liga in the United States. I think the question is spot on from Nathan. There is genuinely less coverage of La Liga in the United States. I think language can be a part of that relative to the Premier League, where you don't have the language barrier. It's very easy to consume coverage that's being created here in the United States, but then also from abroad and in England. La Liga doesn't have that benefit. They have the language barrier, but that's not an excuse, though, right? Because the Bundesliga and Serie A have language barriers. But the difference, as you highlighted, Adam... Those are on ESPN. You can find every single Bundesliga game, every single Serie A game on ESPN+. Plus. Every week, each and every week, you can find every game there. La Liga, that's not the case. It is simply not the case with broadcast rights from Spain being shown here in the U.S. But I will say, Adam, I don't know if you read this, there is hope for La Liga's coverage of, you know, for La Liga being covered here in the United States because I think this kind of turned into an ESPN Plus ad spot. <laughs> but uh, World Soccer Talk reported in January, so not long ago, that ESPN has been in talks to finalize a U.S. rights deal for La Liga that would have the next six seasons beginning next year on ESPN Plus. ESPN could show some games on their main channels on ESPN, on ESPN2 or on ABC, on, on big television. You could slap an El Clasico there on a Sunday afternoon on ABC. That would do big numbers. But then for, you know, Villarreal versus Valencia or other lower profile games, those can go on ESPN+. Plus. I mean, 
that would be an ideal situation for La Liga. It would encourage ESPN to actually cover both written and in video and other medium. That would allow them to cover those games in addition to just showing them either on a streaming platform or on big TV. Um, so things might be looking up for La Liga in the United States and for the coverage of La Liga in the United States. But right now, under BN Sports, it's just not on the level of the Premier League or the Bundesliga or Serie A. I also think you have to look a little bit into, in terms of coverage, I, even outside of broadcasting and just in terms of how much uh, the U.S. soccer media covers the Bundesliga or Serie A in relation to how much they cover La Liga. You also, I mean, are looking at public interest and uh, what a lot of people are interested in the United States about reading is uh, a lot about how American players are doing. And so you have the Bundesliga, which is obviously a hotspot for a lot of American talent that heads to Europe. A lot of them are in Germany or start their careers in Germany. And so the Bundesliga gets a lot of shine in the U.S. just because of that. And in Italy right now, you have Weston McKinney, who is currently making waves and, and kind of vying for title of possibly the best midfielder on one of the oldest and best clubs in the history of the sport. You have a very, very high profile transfer that just went down with Brian Reynolds joining Roma. And even though that's only a couple of Americans and there are, I can name two Americans off the top of my head that are also playing in La Liga in Yunus Musa and Serginho Dest, obviously you have... Barcelona struggling heavily in the league. Valencia aren't a great team in the league. They're, they're middling. They've been middling at best a lot of the times. Um, as opposed to you see Weston McKinney having a lot of success and doing well and kind of scoring some, scoring some goals and Juventus doing well. So I, I think that you also have to factor in a little bit of the public interest in terms of how much these are covered. It's not as easy to make a story out of Sergio Dest every other day when maybe he's not playing or starting every single game that Barcelona have when Barcelona are losing. It's not exactly a feel good story for a lot of Americans. So I, in addition to the broadcasting rights, which I think are kind of the primary answer. You also have to look a little bit into the, the, I guess the tastes of the, of media consumption for American soccer viewers. Yeah. Young Americans are a big part of that. And when, when you have so many young Americans in the Bundesliga and they build that reputation for being the place to go, it's naturally going to get more U.S. soccer fans paying attention to that market. It's naturally going to get more eyes on Germany. The same goes now for, well, the Premier League doesn't need the boost, but the same now goes for Serie A with Weston McKenney. And it is strange that we don't see that same level of buzz with Serginho Dest and Yus Musa in La Liga. That doesn't, I don't, I don't feel like that boosts La Liga's overall viewership or overall, you know, the overall number of people talking about it in the same way that it has boosted Serie A's this year. But I, I think then you circle back around to the TV rights and it's not as easy to watch those players. So not as many people talk about them or know what's going on and are actively engaged in La Liga. And so it then just becomes a vicious cycle that's going around and around and around. And I don't see that cycle being broken as long as BN Sports has those rights. One thing that I, I will say, a little caveat in this, is I, I am uncertain as to the level of Spanish language coverage um, of La Liga and on these other European leagues in the United States, as opposed to English language coverage, um, whether that's in the media, whether that's broadcasting, um, I am willing to bet that there is a higher level of consumption of Spanish language coverage in the United States of La Liga than uh, something like the Bundesliga or Serie A. I think that that like that makes sense to me. I just don't. I don't know because I, I am not, my Spanish is terrible at this point. I used to be pretty <laughs> decent, but my Spanish is not good. And so I don't consume a lot of Spanish, uh, language coverage. Um, and so when we say American players and, and the, the coverage of, uh, the American coverage of European leagues and La Liga, I think that we possibly discount a little bit of, how much Spanish language content is consumed yeah. in the yeah. United States, which is a massive, massive kind of element of soccer fandom in the United States that we possibly are a little bit, we turned a blind eye to a little bit in our little English language soccer bubble that we have kind of created for ourselves. So that is something that I would say is, is another aspect of this conversation that we are probably less, uh, we are less qualified to speak on, but that exists and that is there and I don't want to leave out. Adam tied a nice little bow on that question. We've got two more to get to. This next question is from Sean Scott. 
Could you please discuss the recent revelation about private seat licenses announced by Charlotte FC? What are they, and do they reflect a goodwill effort by the front office to pull in the common fan? So this is what I was getting at with my intro, talking about Adam having to pay an extra price to sit in his chair. So I'm going to lay down the context here so that we can connect the dots to that intro and then actually get into this question. So for context, Sportico reported in late January, or or recently they reported that in late January, Charlotte FC became the first MLS team to sell personal seat licenses. So that's that's the actual name, personal seat licenses. PSLs are exclusive ownership rights for a specific location in the stadium that can be passed down or transferred. And they're, they're a prerequisite for purchasing season tickets at that seat. So P- PSLs essentially double-charge fans. You have to pay for the season ticket, and then you have to pay for the license. You have to pay for the right to have that seat, and it's it's yours at that point to do with what you want. But it is more or less just Charlotte FC and other other teams and other sports that use PSLs. It's just essentially them double charging people that are going to be sitting in their stadium. Yeah, um, you do have to pay a whole lot of money for Charlotte FC's pumpkin spice lattes. Um, that, that is just a when we when we're talking about this, we just we just have to get that out of the way. That these are some of the most expensive tickets in MLS, even before we get to the PSLs that, that you have to purchase. Um, to address your question, Sean, uh, do they reflect a goodwill effort by the front office to pull in the common fan? I don't think pulling in fans has much to do with personal seat licenses. Yeah. Because, I mean, ultimately, the, the only the only real benefit that I see of a, a personal seat license from a fan standpoint is that you can turn around and sell your personal seat license um or or even lease it i think to other people um so essentially you you have the opportunity to make your money back um or even possibly make a profit i, I, I don't I don't know if you can make a profit off of these or not. It seems like that is a possibility um, based on what I understand of them. Um, but if you're talking about the common fan and and kind of like bringing them in, this isn't about that. This is about making more money. It, it straight up is. That is what um, even Charlotte FC's president said. Uh, I believe it was the president in a recent interview that – Oh, you know, via personal seat licenses, we want to be able for, we want fans to be able to see themselves as investing in the stadium and making improvements and stuff, which is pretty nakedly saying, like, we want more money from you and we could, we could possibly turn this into stadium improvements. Uh, there's no guarantee that they take that money and immediately invest all of it directly back in the stadium because I highly doubt that that is exactly what occurs. Um, but it is, Ultimately, it's about making more money and and what money can be made from people that are willing to to pay that out. So in terms of do they reflect a goodwill effort by the front office to pull in the common fan? No, <laughs> I, I from my vantage point, I would say no. I'm with you. I have just a one word answer to that part of the question from Sean. It's just no. I 100 percent with you. It doesn't. This is not about the common fan, right? This is season tickets, which are not always purchased by the common fan. I guess it depends on what your definition of the common fan is. But this is almost a totally different demographic, I think, than that. It's it's focusing on people who have the disposable income in Charlotte to make that purchase and to really commit to the club on a long-term basis financially and kind of emotionally, which is just a really difficult spot. Not everybody's in that spot. And I do think, just to add even more context here, in the supporter section for Charlotte, they are not requiring PSLs. So they are, they're not, no, they're not requiring them. So that, that does give fans a little bit more wiggle room. I'm not, I'm not trying to justify or defend Charlotte. I don't, it's not that what they've done is wrong ethically or anything like that. It's just they've made their, their fans' lives in some ways a little bit more challenging for specific people in order to generate revenue. Which, depending on what they do with that and depending on how efficient they become as an organization, that may be justified down the line. But we just don't have enough information right now. They made this decision. They're going to have to live with it. They did the research, from what I've read, that said, you know, from surveys they've done in their demographics in certain areas, that people didn't mind PSLs, or at least their target demographics didn't mind having to pay for an extra little bit on top of their season ticket. Extra little bit might be, uh, might be a little bit generous there. But it, 
it was a calculated decision by Charlotte. It's going to rub people the wrong way. It already has rubbed some people the long, the wrong way. I don't think I would be especially happy as a consumer in Charlotte if I was looking to buy season tickets outside of the supporter section. But I, I'm just wondering how they're going to use this money and if we're going to see that trail of revenue be reinvested in the club down the line. Yeah, I, I think I would define the common fan as somebody who doesn't want to sit in the supporter section. Um, which, I mean, supporter sections are great. They're, they look cool and fun. They're very responsible in MLS for creating the atmosphere that a lot of these teams really want and go for. And, and a lot of these are, are, uh, a lot of these, if not all of these are, are purely like fan driven initiatives to, to create those atmospheres and to, to create things like the big TIFO displays that you see in some places and, and flags and banners and smoke and all this stuff. But not everybody wants to sit behind a bunch of flags and, and smoke and have their view of the game partially obstructed all game. And, and that's fine. <laughs> like there, there's, there, I don't think there's anything wrong with really being into supporters culture and loving it and, and giving your all for that. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with not wanting to sit in the supporter section. Um, and, and being a more casual fan. Um, so I, I think that we can kind of safely define the common fan as, somebody who wants to buy a seat but doesn't want to buy a seat in the supporter section and for charlotte if you want a season ticket and you don't want to sit in the supporter section you have to buy a public uh, a personal seat license that is that is the requirement for buying a season ticket anywhere else in the stadium um so so yeah i i i i don't i don't have a a high like moral ground necessarily to to give this take or, or to, to be, uh, the person saying this, I think, but I, I don't, from my personal standpoint, I wouldn't be incredibly pleased yeah. with, with the whole personal seat license thing that Charlotte is doing. Uh, and especially in combination with just how high their ticket prices are across the board in relation to what ticket prices look like across the rest of the league. It's, it's a steep ticket right now. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it is, one of, if not the most expensive season ticket, depending on where you're sitting in the stadium. Yeah. So will, will Charlotte have the on-field quality to back that up and to justify those prices? I have no idea. It's still way too early to tell, but, uh, we're going to be following that story and we're going to be seeing more fan reaction as they continue to sell more tickets. And we're going to get to see how their roster actually develops over the next year or so before they enter Major League Soccer. And I'm, I'm just curious to see how everything's going to unfold. I am as well. Um, I mean, especially when you're charging, uh, I mean, I saw a lot of people comparing the ticket prices of Atlanta United to Charlotte, which they did have some, some, some things were comparable on, I think mostly on the, the top half range of the ticket prices that you could buy to an Atlanta United game, um, and the tickets that are being sold by Charlotte FC. Um, but Atlanta United came into the league. And were immediately one of the most fun and exciting teams to watch and immediately started vying for silverware. And the vast majority of expansion teams that have entered MLS have not done that from jump. Um, that's ones that we kind of expected to maybe not spend as much money and didn't spend as much money. And that's some teams that went out and blew a ton of cash on flashy signings and big coaches. I'm looking at you inter Miami and <laughs> just weren't very good. Like just, they, I mean, let's call it what it is. Miami wasn't very good last year, even though they bought, you know, they bought Iguain, they bought Matuidi. Um, they had, um, Diego Alonso as their head coach. And there was a very high profile kind of takeaway they had from Liga Amiakis. So that, that's, I mean, I think that if Charlotte, comes into the league and can establish something like an Atlanta United pace where they're immediately very fun, very exciting, and they are chasing silverware from jump. Some of those public concerns about the prices and the personal seat licenses probably quiet down. But if they're not very good, if they go and turn in and kind of inter Miami-esque first season, I think that many more questions will be had over where's our money going and and what are we really buying all these for yeah it's high risk in some ways but it could i mean it could literally pay off for charlotte we just don't know yet we'll have to wait and see adam we have one more question it is from matthew cleveland 
who says MLS just went through a CBA negotiation complete with lockout threats and deadline extensions. I'm sure our friends over at Allocation Disorder are very glad to know that that is no longer happening and that we do have a season coming in Major League Soccer. That's my, that's my addition to that question. Then Matthew says, has the Premier League or any other European top five league ever gone through anything like this? Snavely, did you find any kind of labor disputes or lockout threats in European leagues? I I have, yes. I, I did find a couple. I, I do feel like I need to like phone a friend and call Paul or Sam into this question <laughs> okay. to really like feel confident in any answer that I possibly give. But yeah, I I did I did find a couple. Um and and a couple like fairly recently, um, specifically in Italy and Spain, um, in 2011, there was a couple of brief stoppages uh, in La Liga as players. 2011 was a big year for strikes. Two, big 2011 year for was strikes. a big year for strikes. Uh, La Liga players were looking for better TV revenue. Also, at the beginning of the 2011-2012 Serie A season, um, the season was delayed like a week or two um, because they hadn't come to a collective bargaining agreement, the league and the players. Um, and, and you have various in, in England in the, the first division. I, I'm not even sure if there has been a, a work stoppage or a major conflict between players union and league in the premier league era, but there has certainly been, um, some stuff in with the first division of English football and the players association. Um, that there have, there have been disputes before, um, so yeah, I've seen strikes. I couldn't find anything specifically on, on league wide lockouts. Um, the distinction being a lockout is where the owners shut the league down and a strike is where the players shut the league down by withholding labor. Um, so I couldn't find that. And I think a lot of that comes down to the unique financial structure that MLS has in comparison with a lot of these teams, uh, with a lot of these other leagues in the world. Um, Whereas most other places, clubs are individual clubs control a lot of financial things that players are concerned with in MLS. The league controls those things. And so there's a lot more to discuss between players, unions and leagues like you have kind of indicated in your your question, um, as opposed to. Most of the time when you see strikes and work stoppages in other places and, and even protests amongst amongst players, you see that happen amongst individual clubs and not necessarily as commonly league-wide work stoppages. Yeah, the format of Major League Soccer and their single entity structure makes things different, right? It leads to greater control from the league, which then can lead to a situation like a lockout as opposed to strikes and and we see different situations happen in MLS at different times in the past. We've seen that before. My only other real strike situation that I wanted to add is also from, from 2011. You talked about Spain and Italy. I want to talk about Norway very briefly. In 2011, nearly 100 players in Norway's top flight went on strike over essentially over shoes, over their boots, over their cleats depending <laughs> on what terminology you want to use. They wanted to be able to choose their own equipment. Goalies wanted to choose their own gloves and field players wanted to be able to choose the shoes that they're wearing when they're playing. They wanted to feel comfortable in what they were wearing, feel less concerned about how it might affect their ankles and their their bodies in general and how they would run. But in Norway, players had to use gear that was affiliated with their club's sponsors. The clubs didn't want to disrupt Uh. those sponsorship deals because those are sources of revenue. Those are images that people see. And if they're not seeing Adidas and you're playing for a team that, you know, their jerseys are Adidas – then there's a disconnect there. And so clubs didn't want that. Players did want that. I could not find. I, is it such a tease? I looked for an hour. I kid you not. I could not find how this strike ended. But I do know that the 2011 season in Norway did happen with a very short delay. But I could not find a single article on the internet that let me know how it ended. Did the players get what they wanted? Did they not? I do know that FIFA typically mandates that players can choose whatever gear they want. So it's possible that FIFA intervened and settled that. But please, listeners, I'm putting out a call for your help. If you can find what happened in 2011 in Norway and what ended this strike, send it my way. I really want to know because I got emotionally invested in this and I have no idea what happened. And now neither do you. And I kind of failed as my, you know, I kind of failed my job here, but I, I had to be open and honest. I do not know what happened in 2011 in Norway, but uh, I would love to find out. 
that just reminds me of that World Cup where um, Johan Cruyff was a was signed by Puma. He wore Puma cleats, and Adidas was the kit supplier of the Netherlands national team. And he had the Netherlands make him custom jerseys that didn't have the three stripes down oh, the Johan. sleeve. Oh, yeah, he Johan. had only two stripes. Um, Puma and Adidas having a long-standing feud that stems from. Uh, uh, it, it's it's died down in recent years, to my understanding, but that stems from the company being originally one company that was founded by two brothers in Germany um, that eventually that had a, a feud and and split up and it kind of split their whole town. Super super interesting stuff. If you want to go check that out, um, but but yes, uh, the 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 Norwegians striking over shoes is probably one of the greatest examples I can think <laughs> of of a work stoppage. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you on that one, Adam. We have come to the end of our questions today, sadly. Maybe listeners aren't sad about it, but I am, because I've enjoyed very much talking about Liverpool and Jesse Marsh and Young Americans and, and boots and shoes and all of these things. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I truly appreciate it. Joe, as always, it's an absolute pleasure, and I hope that the listeners like me because they keep inviting me back. So <laughs> if you don't, it's likes to be you, but uh, everybody that does, thanks. Listeners, thank you very much for listening. And the Total Soccer Show will be back again later this week. 